Welcome to Schoolhouse Equity in Education. This is Allison R. Brown, your host. This podcast, the Schoolhouse Podcast, is really about equity in education. And that means what measures that we have to have in place to really ensure that all children have access to the same educational opportunities, accounting for their background, for their experiences, for their personal realities. And one of the things that the Communities for Just Schools Fund has been focused on is restorative justice. Conflict is natural, right? It happens. We are human beings and conflicts arise. But too often, black and brown children are harshly disciplined. They're kicked out of school. They are excluded from their educational program for being in that very human thing called conflict and responding as humans do. Restorative justice is a very student-centered means of both addressing conflict that might arise between students and also creating healthy and equitable learning environments. We'll explore this with my guests today. Dr. Robert Spicer is a national trainer and speaker on restorative justice practices with Restorative Strategies, LLC. Welcome, Dr. Spicer. Thank you, Allison. And Jonathan Stith is a founding member and national coordinator for the Alliance for Educational Justice. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you. So, Robert, I want to start with you. Tell us, what is restorative justice? Restorative justice has a variety of different definitions that all connect with the justice system, being that the modern movement for restorative justice starting in the 70s through uh, Dr. Howard Zare out of Eastern Mennonite University and others. They focus specifically on crimes and how crimes actually affect uh, relationships and those behaviors that come out of those, uh, those crimes and those relationships cause problems that affect the community and relationships. One of the definitions that I like to uh, often use when we talk about restorative justice is the fact that if crime or being out of relationship hurts, then justice should heal. Therefore, restorative justice is justice that heals. There are so many different types of practices that come out of the restorative justice philosophy, the way of being, the way of thinking, the way of, of living. And those particular practices include peace circles, victim offender mediation or restorative mediations, restorative chats, family group conferencing, which is real popular in uh, New Zealand uh, in that particular community. But uh, the working definition I, that I like to use and that I share when I train, that comes from Jay Brayplay, the theorist out of Australia, is that crime hurts and justice should heal. So restorative justice is justice that heals. Jonathan, the Alliance for Educational Justice, AEJ, has launched the George Carter Restorative Justice Youth Apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. Please tell us first, just who was George Carter? George Carter was just a beautiful, beautiful spirit and a young man uh, who was a leader in the Alliance out of New Orleans with Rethink NOLA. And George, he was, uh, the group was called Rethink, and he was a small young man. He used to call him a pre-thinker because he had been involved in the organization. Because <laughs> he could remember and do like elementary and most youth organizing groups. You can join maybe middle school, mm-hmm. but he had been so forceful about trying to make his way to be an organizer that they had made space and called him pre-thinker. Hello, my name is George Carter and I am a rethinker. I'm here to tell you about standardized testing and how it is affecting my school by causing my classmates to drop out or even go to jail. You probably heard the student dropout rate caused by the schools to prison pipeline. But I'm here to give you the real story. The test to prison pipeline. What is the test to prison pipeline? 
the current amount of high stake testing forced teachers to teach to the test. The problem was that is everybody had to learn on one level. So let's say I'm lagging behind in math. So that means I have to move harder to move up. If I have to move, work harder, I'm gonna get stressed. If I get stressed, I won't be able to do my work, I'll probably flunk class or drop out of school. If I drop out of school, I'm gonna be on the streets. If I'm on the streets, I'm gonna be homeless, dead, or in prison. George was murdered on his way to school in New Orleans by another young person. Mm -hmm. And part of why that really resonates for us is because the last time we had saw George, we were all together in Chicago right around the time that George Zimmerman verdict mm. was announced. And I remember vividly the conversation that we were having was about 50 young folk kind of stuffed into my small hotel room, really scared about police and white vigilante violence. But George had a very different concern, and he was really concerned about what was happening in his community and the kind of confluence of violence that was happening mm. as he saw young people trying to survive in New Orleans post-Katrina with no support. Part of the reason why he was up at like the break of dawn in the morning when he was killed was because they still hadn't opened a community school, mm. a school in his community. And so like so many young people, like he had to get up at the wee hours of the morning, make his way across an abandoned field in his community that probably should have been a garden where his body was found to the bus stop, to catch a bus to school. And so... And how old was he, Jonathan? I think he was um, 15 mm -hmm. when he was murdered. And part of George's radical vision and why he lived is that he used to say, can you imagine a school where instead of metal detectors, they had new detectors. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine a school where instead of sending kids out of school, they send them to the school strawberry garden to big gardens? Mm -hmm. And so for us, that really captures what young people believe is the power and the beauty of restorative justice and why uh, we start the fellowship to honor his memory and to really also name young people as experts in restorative justice and provide an opportunity for them to really shape how restorative justice continues to roll out as it grows as a movement and really to center them as the leaders, as the practitioners uh, that they have been. In the United States, 857 students drop out of school every school hour. In the state of Florida, researchers proved that lower-performing students can spend it for longer periods of time than high-performing students. Thanks. What exactly is the George Carter Restorative Justice Youth Apprenticeship? It's an opportunity for uh, youth leaders in the alliance to basically come together as a nationwide alliance to train together as restorative justice practitioners mm -hmm. uh, to kind of strengthen their theoretical background, um, to strengthen their practice, and to really create a community of restorative justice practitioners in the alliance. It's also part of our commitment to really deepen our, our practice as we're beginning to see ourselves as kind of these restorative justice organizers, right, and really wanting to be about it. So it's really about how do we create, again, kind of opportunities for young people to be recognized as experts in their experience, to gain more skills, and potentially, hopefully, open and uh, create some pathways and some pipelines for young people to even become restorative justice practitioners in their schools, to go on to get degrees in restorative justice. And so we just wanted to really, again, kind of honor George mm -hmm. and create an opportunity for so many young people who in the Alliance have been organizing and fighting and winning restorative justice, mm -hmm. but then we were seeing them being locked out of opportunities mm -hmm. to be the restorative justice practitioners 
in their schools. And so we just really wanted to come together and figure out how we can create an opportunity for uh, young people to fulfill that and play that role. And Robert, the way that Jonathan is describing restorative justice, it's much bigger than I think folks who've heard of restorative justice conceive of it. So when we hear about restorative justice, often we hear about it in the criminal justice context. There's a a crime committed and there's a victim and a perpetrator of the crime. And there's a restorative justice circle or event that brings them together to talk about that moment of conflict and then to go on about their lives. But the description that Jonathan just provided was much more robust. It was much richer than that. When you are in schools, when you are working with educators and providing training and support for restorative justice, how do you conceive of it and what does it look like in schools? So first of all, I want to uh, give honor to uh, Brother Carter and his life and his Mm -hmm. legacy. In Chicago, we know all too well about young people and their power and how they mm-hmm. utilize uh, change agents. And so uh, naming the suppression program for George and also creating a new set of leaders, I think is very important. When we're looking at it from the school setup, we're looking at it from this whole notion of culture and climate within schools. When you look at the culture and the climate of schools, when we have a zero-tolerance mind state, the focus is always about punishment and about control. Mm-hmm. And there's no opportunities for healing and restoration and reconciliation in the autonomous model. The focus is that you come to school to learn. If you don't want to follow our rules, then we have three uh, options for you. You can be either suspended, you can be arrested, or you can be expelled from the system. Uh, this is what we faced here in Chicago for many years. And the restorative justice community, with the leadership of the Community Justice Youth Institute, a group that I had the opportunity to work with, the leaders of that group, Cheryl Graves and Orshu, believe in building capacity and organizing and really giving tools to the young people as well as to the parents as to how to actually begin to envision, as George was looking at, how we can envision a new paradigm for how we actually educate our young people and how we teach them social skills as opposed to teaching them to a test, mm-hmm. uh, which no, no stuff behind in the Bush uh, era law actually created this whole notion of accountability. And so when you're looking at it from a school lens and you're looking at how do we approach a school, we're looking at the culture of the school. So we're looking at three specific and distinct things. What the school practices, Mm -hmm. what the school promotes, and what the school permits. Once we can answer those three questions of what the school practices, what they promote, and what they permit, then we can begin to dial up the processes of how a restorative lens or a restorative process can actually actually be used in a school setting. With schools, you're dealing with principals, teachers, you're dealing with parents, you're dealing with children. There's so many moving parts in a school. So we really have to begin the whole process of building capacity within the school environment Mm -hmm. and looking at the culture. Then from there, then we can begin to look at the climate because the climate being the overall feeling of the school Now we can begin to see what are the things we need to do to affect the culture Mm -hmm. so that the climate that's restorative as opposed to punitive. And in my work as a a trainer and having worked in a Chicago public school and actually incubating this process, we saw incredible gains when adults began to change their approach and move away from using zero tolerance as a means to changing mind states. Mm -hmm. But we know zero tolerance and punishing young people does not change mind states, right? 
you know, we, we were looking at it and we realized that hurt people hurt people. Yeah. Um, we adults hurt these, these, these laws that were definitive, and then we turned around and did what? We did what Dr. Neil O'Connor said in her book, if you don't feed the teachers, they'll eat the children. Mm. And so what we were doing, we were eating the children up, using zero tolerance. And then the parents, they felt disconnected because they didn't feel that they had a voice. Mm-hmm. But what restorative measures, the different practices do, is that they give everyone a voice. And not just simply we're sitting around in a circle and we're just talking, but there are actual practices and practices that we put in place to support the whole notion of student voice, adult voice, school voice, and being able to make sure that everybody's listened to and heard, not only from their head, but also from their heart. And that's why the restorative justice movement here in Chicago and throughout the United States, as it's spreading, uh, is beginning to take root because people see the value of really bringing and creating a safe space for young people to share, especially when hearing that story that was just shared about George. Our story was Darian Albert here in Chicago, and his death was September 24, 2009. And his death opened up an opportunity for people to really listen to how should we approach our young people? How should we attend to the hurt and the trauma that our young people are dealing with as opposed to seeing them as criminal and always using criminal measures or in terms of law enforcement to always deal with, the, with our young people? But all our young people needed was a hug. They need to be listened to. They need support. They need to know that we as adults cared about them and wanted to see them be successful. So the restorative justice measures, and has been said uh, so eloquently, it's about love, and it's about showing compassion to our young people. You know, restorative justice is love in action. Mm-hmm. And that's what we want to share as we go around the United States, that this is what you would do with your own children. Mm-hmm. We would love them and support them and give them the tools necessary to be successful Americans. And Jonathan, how does restorative justice change the environment of a school? What have you observed both for young people and for the adults in the building? It breaks that culture that uh, Dr. Spicer, did I get it right? Yes. Yes, sir. All right. (laughs) (laughs) That he was talking about. um, One that we've kind of started to talk about in terms of uh, another Chicago great Dr. Bobby Wright in terms of this concept of menticide, right? Mm -hmm. And that for schools, right, there is this process of like really immediate assimilation or annihilation, right? Mm -hmm. And that the education that young people are receiving, particularly black and brown young folks, is learning to stay in your place. And what we've seen with restorative justice do is absolutely turn that dynamic on its head, overthrow it, and usher in kind of transformative school climate. And it does begin. I've seen it shift the way schools practice Mm -hmm. their discipline, even practice the art of teaching, right? So much of what we've seen under this um, kind of moment of kind of steep uh, privatization and kind of this market-driven idea is that, you know, teaching has become kind of rope, drill, and Mm -hmm. kill, right? And embedding and restorative justice in teaching begins to break that, kind of returning the humanness to what the teaching process is, returning Mm -hmm. it to its kind of transformative piece. And really for Black folks, you know, a real return to kind of our vision around education as liberation, education as this transformative space. And so we've seen that. We've also seen it kind of also in terms of power challenge some of the dynamics for young people in the alliance. Restorative justice is not just for intercommunal violence between young folks, but that it is also about challenging 
the power inequities that exist structurally in a school system, and also the power inequalities that sometimes exist between teacher and student, mm-hmm. young person and adult. And then you can add in a, a layer of race, right? Like mm-hmm. white teacher and black student. And so that it's a, an opportunity to allow us to challenge that power and equity, mm-hmm. to challenge the systems of power and to offer an opportunity for transformation and for healing. And I think, again, for that's the, the beautiful part about young people and their fight for restorative justice is that they still believe in teachers. They still believe in education. They still believe in a transformative force. And for them, restorative justice is that opening, is that way to kind of really transform schools back or transform it forward mm-hmm. into kind of realizing a, a vision of schools where, again, I think for them, the place that they want to learn to be yeah. at is in the circle with each other, right? And mm-hmm. how do we sit down together, solve our problems together? Yeah, so it, it is a lot. Even just how, how we think about the governance and running of schools, right? It just it creates new, a new power dynamic that, again, allows them to think about what does it mean to solve their own problems? What does it mean to solve conflicts in their community? And so I think those are all just kind of very useful skills, not only that exist, that live in the classroom, but also in society. And so for young folks, restorative justice is about shaping schools to reshape society. That is profound. Shaping schools to reshape society. So Robert, will you just walk us through a restorative circle? What happens in a restorative circle? And then what are the takeaways? What happens after the circle? The circle process is an indigenous practice. So it's based in all indigenous cultures throughout the world. And the individuals that trained uh, myself and others here in Chicago held very closely to the fidelity of the model and the practices. So usually an event would occur if we're talking about a school, some type of event would trigger uh, administrator to speak to specific parties about an opportunity to instead of going into a punitive uh, measure, which could be detention, suspension, or expulsion or arrest, they have an opportunity to actually, as Jonathan said, have an opportunity to sit and to talk and to work out their problems. So we take a particular circle that's specific around an issue. In the high school that I had the opportunity to work in, Christian Finger High School in Chicago, uh, Illinois, as the uh, culture and climate coordinator, the first ever type of position that was ever created in the United States. And I know that because I Googled it and there was nobody doing what we were doing in 2009. (laughs) Um, A lot of the issues that were coming up were a lot of the girl issues when I was working Mm -hmm. in a high school. And so a simple misunderstanding between females. Just a simple misunderstanding. The young lady looked at her and she thought she was making a face or making a remark. And the young lady just had something in her eye, right? Or it could have been something that happened years ago. And now that they're in high school, now they feel the need to actually, you know, fight or talk about it or get into an argument. And so having a sort of mindset in the school will allow for that dean or that vice principal to begin to think differently about how do we actually have those young people work out their issue so it doesn't result in a suspension, expulsion, or an arrest. Mm -hmm. And so the actual process, uh, you have an actual person who's trained as a circle keeper, and usually you have two keepers. One is a keeper, just keeping the space, and then you have a co-keeper or another adult or a student that's been trained in the practice. And then we do, we have opportunities to speak to the different parties to find out what's the issue, what's going on. 
And then we bring them into a safe space. And mm-hmm. at the school that I taught at, it was a peace room. And this space was where we did all of our restorative measures. And this was an opportunity for students in the frame of peace circle to sit in a circle to create our shared values of how we want to be our best selves in this space to do ritual, to open up the space and let people know that this space is different from going to class or going to gym or going to your sporting event, but this is a safe and peaceful environment that we're creating. And then from there, have an opportunity to get acquainted, build trust in storytelling, decide and make decisions and plans as to how we move forward, mm-hmm. and then finally move into the community building process. And there's a talking piece, and that talking piece is a value piece that the circle keeper and the young people can bring into the space, and that talking piece allows for the individuals in the space to speak when they have it. And when they don't have it, that tells them that it's time for them to listen to the others. Mm. And what I've seen when we've done these circles with the young ladies is that it has helped them to gain better understanding around issues that would have resulted in a big fight or resulted in bullying or resulted in a passive-aggressive or even aggression toward young ladies, people that were friends. Mm. and What's powerful, what Jonathan talked about in terms of young people getting in their head, you know, we can learn these practices and we can do it. We don't need to have to get referred to the dean to get a circle. We can hold our own circles and we can begin the whole process of, you know, resolving our conflicts and resolving our issues that may come arise. Or or just to be able to gain understanding about different things. With our young men, the circles were always around respect and loyalty most times, Mm -hmm. and the breach of those things. And those things can result in in a variety of aggressive actions toward each other. And the young men appreciated the opportunity to be able to talk things out because oftentimes some adult might, or they might bring weaponry, or some one of their friends might bring weaponry and someone might die just because of a misunderstanding. And so the practices that we do, the Peace Circle practice, follows that process of getting acquainted, building trust, gaining uh, an understanding of the plan as to how we move forward, what is our action plan moving forward, and then finally we move into the community building phase, which is an ongoing phase of what we need to be as young people, adults, and others in that particular space. So a question for you, Jonathan, about when or whether there are times when restorative justice is maybe not the most appropriate vehicle. And I'm thinking specifically about instances of sexual assault, sexual harassment that are incidents themselves that are traumatizing and where encounters between the victim of that assault or harassment with the harasser can be re-traumatizing. Does restorative justice account for that? And if so, how? And if not, what are some of the other strategies that might be useful in place of restorative justice? Like Dr. Spicer said, I believe that restorative justice is love in action, mm-hmm. but we also have to want to ground it in kind of the, the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. And from at least from what I've seen with restorative justice outside of the criminal justice arena, I believe that it is possible that it can be used as a process to heal. Again, I think but with measures that, again, protect folk, and I think that's also part of the things we want to draw out about restorative justice, right? That it has to be a voluntary process, right? And both mm-hmm. both have to be, you know, volunteer and agree that this is the process for them. And so I think that is really, really important. That And there is a 
tendency to want to see restorative justice as a panacea for all conflicts, Mm -hmm. which is beautiful and lovely. But again, I think we want to recenter on its aspects of being voluntary. And so when we understand it from that space, then there isn't any crime that restorative justice cannot fix. And we have to be recenter in the principle that restorative justice is a voluntary process, that Mm -hmm. both the offended and the offender have to agree to that. And I, again, so that, that primary agreement, I think is what, again, power uh, and its ability to kind of produce the healing. And so if it isn't voluntary, then it, it really offends one of the first and primary principles of restorative justice, right? Mm-hmm. That both parties have to agree with it. And I, I think in that sense, that's what gives us its power and its uh, ability to create change that both folk and really the third and the community really want this to be healed. And so I think with, you know, all due practicality and, you know, making sure that everyone feels safe, that we can believe that it works. We have seen it work in criminal cases. We've seen it work where there has, you know, been death, um, multiple deaths between folk, and it has been a process that's been able to heal those and move folk forward. And Robert, Jonathan alluded to the tendency of, I think, especially education system actors who want to put restorative justice in place quickly and then, you know, move on. And so are may be inclined to see restorative justice as a panacea. But what else is, is necessary if we're truly wanting to create healthy and equitable learning environments for young people? What else is necessary? Restorative justice and what else? I think what is necessary is to look at this as a long-term process and not something that is uh, pie in the sky. In education, there's uh, always these flavor, flavor of the month type programs that come and go. And restorative justice as a philosophy is not a program mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. because of some type of budget cuts, but it's actually the way that we as human beings, we as educators, we as teachers, chaplains, pastors, police officers, the way that we actually operate with our fellow citizens and our fellow uh, brothers and sisters and begin the whole process of healing and restoring and uh, helping individuals to begin that process of repairing harm. What's needed is definitely somebody with the know-how to know how to navigate the many, many, many processes that go on in a school community. That person has to have a know-how and understanding of the culture and climate of schools mm-hmm. and the myriad of uh, processes that go on, the many different uh, leadership groups that make up a school. The most important person to actually get on board in a school community is the principal and his or her leadership team. But oftentimes it's organized outside of the school and the push from the parents where we see some of these changes actually begin to occur and happen. Really about our parents is that they have the power to really bring their understanding of why this work of restorative justice is important, not only for their children, but also for the community at large, because a lot of times things happen in the school community and then they spill out into the streets. And so going back to what Jonathan had said earlier about shaping the schools to reshape society, it's really about the schools becoming headlight, not a taillight, as uh, Dr. King said in the Medical Birmingham Jail. We have to be the leaders of this work, and we have to be firm and immovable to the fact that this work can produce transformation in the lives of our young people, as well as the adults that are in the school. 
It takes really creating a logic model, a three to five year process, which mm-hmm. is what we did at the school in Chicago. It takes the support of the parents. It takes the support of teachers. And sometimes that can be real difficult with our teachers because they're accustomed to kind of focusing in on the teaching for learning side of their work. And so bringing in that restorative measure is really about social emotional learning and getting them to really understand how important it is for our teachers to be a part of this process and to be the leaders of this, as well as with the young people. And, and we cannot forget the young people and their power, as what was said uh, by Jonathan and the work that he's doing with the young people organizing them. Those young people in Chicago really saved my butt a lot of times because <laughs> They were able to go in spaces and say things that I couldn't say. Right? Mm-hmm. They can do things that I can do. And they can bring a sense of understanding to their peers that me as an adult, I couldn't reach them. But giving them these tools and giving them the ideas of why this is important, why this is not a program that can just go away tomorrow, but it's a, it's a practice that we have to continually practice in order to get better and to grow and to begin to affect the outer community that the children come from. So I just see the, the possibilities are endless. This is the first connection that our young people get to the government, is school. Mm-hmm. And if the school's focus is to push out black children, Latino children, children that are LGBT, and children that have 504 plans IEPs, what you're saying is that those children are not deserving to be citizens of the United States. And so I see this as an American problem when we talk about zero tolerance mm-hmm. and we talk about these punishment focus that we've been, we've been on for the last uh, many years. And to begin to move America into a space where schools have become a space where young people become citizens who can vote, who can become entrepreneurs, who can become leaders of tomorrow today. Thank you so much to Robert Spicer, who is a national leader on restorative justice practices. He is the founder of Restorative Strategies, LLC, and he is a recent recipient of his PhD. Congratulations, Dr. Spicer, and thank you so much for joining us today on Schoolhouse. Thank you. If people want to reach you, find you online, what's the best way for them to do that? You can find me on Twitter, uh, Reverend Dr. Underscore Spicer on Twitter or at Robert Spicer on Twitter. You can also find me at my website. Uh, that's www.restorativestrategy.expert. And as well on Facebook, you can find me as my name, Robert Spicer. And Jonathan Stith is a founding member and the national coordinator for the Alliance for Educational Justice, AEJ. And Jonathan, thank you so much for being on Schoolhouse. AEJ is such a, an instrumental leader in these, this work on school discipline reform, in creating healthy learning environments, and particularly restorative justice. So I want to thank you for being on Schoolhouse and for your leadership and and partnership and your work. Thank you for having us. And if folks want to find you, Jonathan, online, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, They can find us online at the number four, Ed Justice. Uh, That's our Twitter handle. That's also where you can find us on Facebook. And then you can find me online, uh, Facebook, Jonathan Stiff, and on Twitter, uh, I am L Jimadari, E L underscore J E M E D A R I. I want to take this moment to remember George Carter, the young man who Jonathan talked about and for whom yes. the Restorative Justice Youth Apprenticeship is named, and remember him as love, as action. In 2011, Rethinkers came up with a recommendation saying, Start school stress teams and include teachers, counselors, and students. 
This stretch, to our knowledge, there are only two schools in New Orleans that have support teams. But the Rethinkers want all schools in New Orleans to have support teams. Many thanks to all of you, of course, for listening in. And remember that you can follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and visit the Communities for Just Schools Fund website at cjsfund.org. Have a wonderful week.